0: L Fanboy Episode 26 You're sitting in the kitchen of Master Chef Wolfgang Puck The man himself is standing right there, ready to cook you a meal. You've had many of his signature dishes, and you've almost always loved them. You thought the last dish he served you was a little undercooked, but you still give him the benefit of the doubt. You trust him. He is Wolfgang Puck, after all. He asks you what you'd like, and you reply with, surprise me. Puck now goes around his kitchen, grabbing the finest ingredients and preparing a meal for you from scratch. He decides to make you a bologna sandwich. Puck grabs a loaf of freshly baked, toasted on the outside, warm and soft on the inside bread. He slices up some vegetables grown in his personal garden and cultivated to be in the perfect state for consumption today. He pulls out a block of bologna cut from the jolliest grass-fed cows, pigs, and whatever other animal parts are grounded into bologna. He carefully and meticulously slices the meat, and you can clearly see the care and attention that he places into every step as he constructs your sandwich. He even uses his own personal gourmet special sauce. He serves it. You take a bite, it's still just a bologna sandwich. That's Interstellar in a nutshell, the most artfully crafted, finely made, gorgeous looking crappy movie you'll see this year. That was how I began my review for Interstellar, which I wrote back on November 5th, 2014. Uh, I'm not going to go ahead and say that it's the exact same situation now with Dunkirk, but Dunkirk is another example of this sort of artfully crafted nothing burger, Uh, for me at least. I finally had a chance to see it yesterday. I walked in with sky-high expectations, because despite the fact that I've I've found uh, some of Nolan's latest work to be not so hot... I still have a great deal of respect for for Christopher Nolan, so I walked in expecting this to be fairly spectacular. Um, you know, it's written by him, directed by him. It's a World War II setting. Uh, the trailers are all very tense and gripping and dramatic. Uh, the reviews are through the roof. I'm not sure if I mentioned that yet already, but you know, so I was. I walked in like, oh, this is going to be a feast. This is going to be. Uh, quite a jaw dropping experience. And once again, I just felt like, you know what? The production value is incredible. The visuals, you know, there's heft to the visuals, the score, the sound design, everything. Like you could tell that everything about this film was meticulously combed over by an obsessive filmmaker who takes this stuff very, very seriously. You can see, you can sense the love that went into crafting this. Maybe not the love. That's not the right word for it, because one of my critiques is how sort of emotionless uh, the film is. Uh, So maybe not love, but at least passion. he, He put a lot of passion or a lot of effort into making this film the way he wanted to make it. And for me, at least... I remember just last night when it when the credits started to roll at about 12:15, I turned to my buddy who was there to watch it with me and we both just kind of looked at each other like, okay, so that happened. Um, I don't know, you know, and listen, that's not to say that I wasn't uh, caught up. you know, it was definitely uh, a very sort of harrowing experience at times. It was had a very gritty, uh, very sort of arresting visual style with the way he displayed the violence and the the circumstances that he put the characters in and the fact that this is ripped out of the history books and a lot of this really happened. You know, it, it, I was definitely sort of engrossed with the film because it's hard not to be. It's just visually very arresting and the subject material itself is very powerful. But in terms of like a film with any sort of narrative or characters that I really care about or building towards an emotional crescendo or anything where I, I could walk away with a lot to think about, to me, Dunkirk just sort of let me down. It just seemed to be a series of occurrences that were all fairly dark and awful um, and again, this isn't a critique of darkness. I'm fine with dark, you know, thoughtful, complex uh, examinations of themes. But this was just like everything sucks. Some people survive. A lot won't. And uh, this is a thing that happened. Like that. That was like the entire subtext of the movie for me. There wasn't much to feel uh, particularly. Uh, engaged in or, or, or to feel happy or triumphant about towards the end, even during a sequence there towards the end, where I guess it's supposed to be sort of uh, put leading us towards a happy ending. And to me, it just kind of like, there's a, there's like a block, there's a blockade between myself and the emotions I could have felt. I believe the blockade was uh, Mr. Nolan's massive British stiff upper lip. I just couldn't quite climb over his upper lip um so yeah I don't know yeah it's funny for for all the films that that I was raving about last week about how this is like one of the greatest summers or you know summer movie seasons ever um Dunkirk was one that I was actually expecting to be the king of the hill I was like saving that one I'm like all right you yeah, know the, the season's pretty much dead I'm not going to see the dark tower there's, you know, the, aside from the fact that, you know, there's some really good looking horror movies that are coming out right away. Uh, you know, my expectations of those are always fairly on the low end because it's such a mixed bag what you get in the horror genre. So as far as I was concerned, the final event film of the year for me will be Dunkirk. And that'll be how I sort of cap off an amazing summer. And I got to tell you, it was probably, of all of the highly reviewed, highly touted, beloved films that have come out this year, Dunkirk, for me, was the weakest of them all. Um, you know, my friend who I was there with, you know, we also saw Baby Driver together two weeks ago. And we both agree that, like, that film mopped the floor with Dunkirk, which is funny to think that a silly little Edgar Wright movie about a getaway car driver and a heist movie would actually have a lot more uh, emotion, a lot more of an interesting, fascinating narrative and characters that you can get behind. You know, I can still name the characters in the film two weeks later. I I was thinking about the film yesterday, and I could still run down the names of all the primary leads. Isn't that like, that's not something that happens very often. And it's a testament to how Wright was able to get you to buy into these characters and buy into their arcs and storylines. Uh, Dunkirk for me, it was like, all right, you know, it just, I think I've already made this point, so I don't want to beat a dead horse. But for me, it was just, it felt like a series of occurrences and not like a movie. It didn't feel like it had any real narrative thread or anything it really wanted to say. Uh, And even one of the, 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 the parts that could have been the most powerful, the parts that could have grabbed you by the throat and put a lump in there and made your eyes do the old shine, kind of just didn't, it wasn't really played right, at least for me, which is the, the whole idea of civilians putting their lives on the lines to help the military. You know, that seems to be one of the reasons this film was made. It seems like it's one of the reasons that Nolan wanted to tell this story. Because what's remarkable re- remarkable about what happened in Dunkirk is the way everyday civilians put their lives on the line, got on their boats and went there to help the soldiers that were stranded. But even when that sort of comes to fruition, for me, it just, it didn't really land. And, and maybe it was, you know, it just, it could have used a little something. My dad has a phrase he always uses, you know, sometimes you got to squeeze the juice. You know, sometimes you have a delicious fruit in your hand, but you got to squeeze it a little bit to make the uh, the juice come out, to really kind of get it into that peak moment of, of enjoyment, that savory, sweet, juicy moment. You got to squeeze it a little bit. And Nolan always seems sort of allergic to the idea of squeezing the juice. He always kind of wants to be very minimalistic. He wants to present things to you and allow you to feel about them, whatever you'd like. Uh, and that's Fine, I suppose, but for me it was just it just sort of left me a bit cold, um, and it's unfortunate because you know I, I've had a I've I, I have a long sort of history with Nolan now at this point, you know I, I I've been a fan pretty much since the beginning. I remember when he rose on the scene with Memento; he was suddenly this, this big filmmaker to be on on you know uh, on the hunt for or keep an eye out for. He followed it up with Insomnia, which I loved. Uh, for me, that's one of my favorite sort of later, later stage Al Pacino performances, and getting to see the late great Robin Williams uh, be a creep. And overall, just the way that that that's that story was told and, and the uh, the just the, the artfulness that went into it. I thought, you know what, this guy's a big deal. I'm gonna keep an eye on this Christopher Nolan guy. You know, and then Warner Brothers tapped him to make Batman Begins and I'm like, "Holy shit. This is serious. They didn't just hire some fly-by-night sort of, you know, action director Michael Bay type or, you know, no 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 Joel no Joel Schumacher type again. They're going for a real auteur. They're going for someone who who has who brings some heft with him." And I was not disappointed. Batman Begins I thought was stellar, pretty much from start to finish. <clears throat> then there was The Prestige, which it's kind of funny. Um, a lot of people love the film. I'm not about to say that I don't. Uh, I'm about to just sort of uh, put a disclaimer on my feelings about Prestige because I enjoyed it. For me, it's definitely, it's a thumbs up, but I was also in a very bad place when I saw it. Uh, I was in Miami. I had to fly my, my mother and my grandmother down to Miami to, to bury my grandfather Uh, He's the man I'm named after, Mario Pena. He was a respected Cuban playwright and professor and director. Um, He died suddenly, and I had to pick up the family and fly us down there. And we dealt with the funeral and going through his house. And it was was just, it was heavy. And one of those nights that we were there, I just, I jumped in the rental car and I found a local theater. And I saw The Prestige. I just needed something to sort of distract me because, you know, there was a lot going on. And I remember thinking this was a pretty good movie. But now I see pe- the way people speak about The Prestige. It's like it's one of his finest works. And it's this wonderful movie that requires all of this dissection and analysis. So now I kind of feel like I need to see it a second time. Remember, a second time because I don't rewatch movies for the most part. Um So I do owe myself a second viewing of prestige, but either way, you know, the momentum that for me began for real with insomnia that was continued with Batman Begins continued through prestige. I came out of prestige going, yep, this Nolan guy is definitely someone to keep an eye out for. He's, he's got the chops. He's going to be the next great filmmaker, the next, you know, Spielberg, the next big name in directing. And then the fucking Dark Knight came out. Oh my God. I loved the hell out of that movie when it came out. Um, To me, it was just like, look at this guy taking what could be a silly concept, another comic book movie with a guy dressed like a bat fighting a guy with clown makeup on, and he's turning it into art. He's turning it into high-minded concepts and and, and themes and allegorical themes that he's looking to explore and really sort of say something with a genre that typically is just about blowing shit up. Uh, and just looking cool and look at my superpowers. And here's the big boss fight at the end. You know, I I really, I was so impressed with The Dark Knight. Uh, And then Inception followed that up. And now if I loved Nolan, I was absolutely in love with Nolan after Inception. To me, that film was just blockbuster. It had everything, you know, it had an interesting uh, original sort of story it had fascinating visual effects. You had a top tier cast bringing their a game. It had twists and turns. Just for me, inception was just like oh unbelievable. Uh, remember how I, how I mentioned last week that I you know I've never been one to really buy Blu-ray. Like I kind of left my, my, my film collecting days in the past. Uh, But I have the Inception Blu-ray because I'm like, that's a film that needs to be on the mantle. That is one of the best films for me of the new millennium. Uh, But then, unfortunately, that's where things start to trend downward for me with Nolan. You know, The Dark Knight Rises is one of those films where I instantly saw its flaws. It's, It's become very interesting to me to see how people have ultimately come around to my views on The Dark Knight Rises. Because, you know, I saw it with a big group of guys. I I went with a group of seven. It was my boy Colin's uh, rehearsal dinner night. He was getting married the next day. And we kind of have a tradition that uh, at the rehearsal dinner, we go see the big uh, superhero movie. Like for my wedding in 2011... Uh, we saw Captain America, the first Avenger, on the night before my wedding. When Colin got married the following year, we saw The Dark Knight Rises. And then we went in, we're very hyped. You know, it's Nolan, it's Batman, it's the end of the trilogy. This is a big fucking deal. Everyone's in a great mood. Colin's getting married tomorrow. Let's do this. And we went, and I just remember there were several times throughout the movie where I found myself sort of cringing and looking around like, does anyone else get the sense that this kind of sucks? Um, and at that time I was in the minority. I remember when the credits rolled and we all stepped out and we all started sort of doing our post-mortem. Hey, what did you think? Blah, blah, blah. Everyone else was pretty much like, oh yeah, that was great. Even, even Jeremy Scully, who used to write with me over at the, the site that shall not be named. Uh, he's a huge Batman mark. And he was like, oh, that was everything I want in a Batman movie. And I just remember thinking, Really? And the funny thing is, now if you speak to Scully, and if you speak to those guys I went to with, and if you look around the internet and the way people speak about Dark Knight Rises, everyone pretty much agrees that it was a misfire. You know, no one agrees, no one thinks it was a bad movie. Like, even I, I don't think it was a bad movie. But compared to, like, what he had done with Batman Begins, compared to what he had done, the achievements he had made, he had achieved with the Dark Knight, the Dark Knight Rises was pretty sloppy, pretty like lazy storytelling, fairly just kind of a ho-hum finale. Um, And then Interstellar came out and I, once again, I walked into it thinking, okay, listen, you maybe he just didn't want to make that Batman movie. To this day, I sort of get the sense that he sort of made it begrudgingly like, fine, you want me to close off the trilogy? I'll close the goddamn trilogy. But his heart wasn't in it. You know, I know that when Heath Ledger died, there was a lot of talk that, you know, he didn't really want to continue anymore because what he wanted to do was explore the Joker further in the third film. And, you know, it just, his his heart just sort of fell out of the whole Batman thing. So for me, Dark Knight Rises just reeked of a director who was just doing this so he could close it off and move on. So with Interstellar, I thought, okay, now we're going to get a rejuvenated filmmaker. You know, now he's going to feel like, okay, I got... The the one for them out of the way, you know. There's that concept in Hollywood of I'll make one for the studio, one for me. So Dark Knight Rises was his, you know, his sort of holding up his end of the bargain for Warner Brothers. But Interstellar was going to be his baby, where he'd get to pour all of his talents and creative juices into the mix. And Interstellar let me down big time. You know, as you can tell from what I how I started that review, you know. It's just unbelievable to me how amazing the film looks and feels, yet how hollow and sort of blah the narrative and the story itself actually turned out to be. Um, and so now with Dunkirk, I just, I'm starting to wonder now what's going on with him. I wonder if maybe it was just sort of beginner's luck there in the beginning where he just happened to be. Uh, hitting his stride at the right time, working with the right people and collaborators. And now he's on the other side of his career where maybe everyone around him is just a yes man. And since he's Christopher Nolan, since he's a a brand name, everyone just sort of loves and respects him and lets him do his thing. But maybe he needs some people around him who will scrutinize and, and kind of push him and question him a little bit. You know, it's not the first time that's happened. You know, think about how much people, like, think about the fall from grace of George Lucas, everyone. He's the perfect example of that. You know, there was a time where George Lucas was the legend, the mastermind, the kingmaker. He had made the original trilogy, and he was a geek god. And in Hollywood, he was one of just the, the great creative types. You know, he had done the original trilogy. He had written uh, the Indiana Jones franchise. He was, you know, he was a made man. And then what happened? With that reputation, suddenly he was surrounded by a bunch of people going, "Yes, that's great, George. Yes, that's great, George. Let's let's do that. Let's do that." And we ended up with the original trilogy, which I'm not going to go there right now. This is not about Star Wars, today's uh, podcast. But it's just an example of how. You can start off amazing and then sort of fizzle out because you don't, you no longer have the right people around you. And I wonder if that's going on with Nolan, because for me, this is now three films in a row where I'm left just sort of meh after films early on in his career that I left utterly amazed by. Um, So yeah, that's just sort of my, I didn't really review the film itself, Dunkirk, but honestly, because there's not really a lot to review. You know, it's hard. Yes. Okay. So uh, the acting is good. Uh, the visuals are powerful. Um, the, the the sound design is really, really crazy stuff because it, there's a lot of dread and a lot of uh, tension built through just sound and, and subtle things. But really, all in all, there's not a lot of there there. Um, and aside from like the interesting conceit of how he handles time and the way uh, you, you you realize at some point in the film that there's actually three or four things going on, and they're not happening they're not happening concurrently, but they're going to eventually line up. Yeah, that that's probably the most inventive and interesting storytelling decision he makes in the entire film. There's nothing else that happens in the movie that was all that unique or interesting, or from a storytelling standpoint, all that uh, laudatory, if you know what I mean. So in case you couldn't tell, Dunkirk for me will not be even touching my top three films of this summer. That now currently sits at number one being Baby Driver, number two being Wonder Woman, number three being Spider-Man Homecoming. And then, you know, uh, War for the Planet of the Apes gets an honorable mention in number four. But really, my top three are Baby Driver, Wonder Woman, Spider-Man Homecoming. Um, Yeah. By the way, before I move on to the news, just a little bit of a fun little factoid, a little, little trivia for you. That uh, that blurb that I read for you in the beginning, it actually was used in a textbook, I found out. It was used in a textbook for how to write opinion pieces. Uh, in a little, in one of the chapters, there's a sidebar basically called Learn from the Masters. And this person quoted my Wolfgang Puck uh, analogy in their in their in the textbook and i i just thought that was pretty damn cool um but all right time for the news and as always we will start things off with a look at the weekend box office the actuals are in on this glorious tuesday morning and the tallies are number one The Dark Tower opened at 19.1, which is a little bit lower than what they were saying on Sunday. It was looking uh, at the early estimates said 19.5 million, but no, it ended up at 19.1. Uh, number two, you got Dunkirk, which fell 35.6% in its third frame for $17.1 million this past weekend. The Emoji Movie uh, fell 51% in its second week. That's not a bad drop, really, but uh, it made $12 million, almost even. Then there's Girls Trip, which is still doing bonkers business when you consider the budget, which is uh, it may it fell 42 percent in its third week to 11.4 million bucks. The top five is rounded out by Kidnap, the Halle Berry uh, thriller. Uh, which opened to $10 million. And that's going to be another success story because of the low budget. Looking beyond the top five, just a couple of notables here. We got Spider-Man Homecoming, which raked in another $8.8 million. Atomic Blonde fell uh, 55.4% in its second frame for an $8.1 million weekend. Uh, Detroit, which is the, uh, the true story, about uh you know just it's a very timely relevant piece and it in its second week uh it made 7.1 million dollars and then there's war for the planet of the apes which continues its sort of ho-hum run with uh, another 41 percent drop at a 6.1 million and finally out of the top 10 is our gal wonder woman uh wonder woman but don't feel too bad for her she's been out for 10 weeks And she still somehow managed to pull in $2.2 million on only 1,307 screens. So she's still going strong. Right ahead of her in 12th place, by the way, is that big flop, the big old turd of Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets. Uh, It finished off only in its third weekend. It's in 12th place with $2.3 million, another 62% tumble. Uh, Not looking good. So I'll do a little bit of analysis here. Number one, Dark Tower. What's interesting about Dark Tower is (laughs) since they kept the budget low... It's more than likely not going to be seen as a huge black eye. There's still talk that they're going to take a loss on it, but it's not as bad as some of the, uh, some of the other big time you know tanking films this year. It's not like Valerian, which cost a crap ton to make, or King Arthur, which may you know cost a crap ton to make, or The Great Wall. You know there have been some colossal flops this year. Dark Tower will not be one of those, mainly because it only costs sixty million dollars to make. So when you factor that in, you know it it opened at just about twenty million, you know, just under twenty million. Uh, it still has some foreign markets to scrounge. It's still going to have the home market. So you know it's it's probably not going to break even, or if it does, not by much. But you know, it's not going to be a huge black eye for for Sony or anyone else involved. And there is talk that they're going to move on, you know, move forward with a TV series. And that's probably what they should have done from the beginning. Uh, How they're going to tie the series into the film, if at all, remains to be seen. And I'm going to to be very curious about that. Uh, Dunkirk. What can I tell you about Dunkirk? You know, it had a 17.1 mil uh, weekend. It currently stands at $314 million worldwide on a $100 million budget. So it has th- therefore tripled its budget, um, which is, you know, uh, they say to be profitable, you have to double your budget. So we're already, you know, by, by that sort of arithmetic, it's already made $100 million in just profit. So that's pretty damn special. Emoji Movie, you know, look, it only costs $50 million to make the worldwide haul is 61 mil. That's pretty soft for an animated film. We know this one was crushed and ravaged by the fact that a critics hated it, and b the concept just seems so paper thin. Uh, you know, it's it's I don't know what the hell to tell you about Emoji Movie. I don't think it's going to break even. I don't. I'm not sure it can hit the 100 million mark at this point but it is what it is. Girls Trip is the one I was referring to earlier. I've been pointing out for the last few weeks now that this may be one of the big triumphs of the year, surprisingly, um, because it only cost $19 million to make, and it's already at $90 million. It's already, what, more than quadrupled its budget. And with the great word of mouth and the very solid reviews, this is probably going to be an event film for mothers and, and women for the remainder of the summer. Uh, you know, they, they were brought to the movies by Wonder Woman, and then they stayed for a for girl's trip. Kidnap, like I said earlier, since the budget was relatively low, um, I, I at some point I heard it was like only $25 million or something along those lines, 25 or thirty. Uh, I don't think a $10 million opening is all that bad. I think it'll probably end up even at some point. I don't know. But, you know, it's it's another one where since the costs were low, the risks were low. I don't think there was a lot of expectations on kidnap. Um Now with Spider-Man: Homecoming, what's interesting is where it stands now. So it's at worldwide 670.9 million. So we can just go ahead and say 671 million. Uh, To put put that into perspective for you, that puts it in fourth place behind the Sam Raimi Spider-Man trilogy. Uh, As I've stated before, it's not going to touch those numbers. Yeah, you know, right now it's trailing Spider-Man three. Spider-Man three's domestic haul was three hundred and thirty six point five million. Uh Spider-Man Homecoming would need to pick up another forty-three million dollars to pass that. That's just not gonna happen. Uh, Spider-Man 2, made yeah, it's just, it's not going to touch any of those. You know, the lowest of the original trilogy was Spider-Man 3. It's not going to touch those, but it has at least surpassed the Amazing Spider-Man 1 and 2. Uh, you know, with the first one having made 262 mil. Um, you know, so it passed that 32 million dollars ago. In terms of its Marvel Cinematic Universe brethren, it currently ranks in 9th place. It is the 16th film in the series and it ranks in 9th place. It is currently 18 million or 17, really, behind Iron Man 2. I think it has a chance of catching up with 2, possibly passing 2. I'm not sure it can pass Iron Man 1, which is number 7 on the list, at 318.4 mil. But, you know, that's, you know, I feel like Iron Man 1 and 2 are in play in terms of Spider Man Homecoming. Uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, though, it's not going to touch. The first Guardians of the Galaxy made $333 million domestically, and Spider Man would need to make $40 million more. Uh, That's just not going to happen. Uh,. And that's about it for Spider-Man analysis. Valerian continues to just be such a sad case. Um, You know, so much went into this. uh, Right now, worldwide, it's at 87.8 million bucks. Not looking good. That movie's going to cost someone an awful lot of money. But Wonder Woman, Wonder Woman continues to be one of the great triumphs here. She currently sits at 793.8. Uh, .8, $793.8 million worldwide. Um, You know, in terms of the DC Extended Universe, that puts her at number one in terms of domestic. In terms of all-time DC comics, you know, DC-based films, that puts her in third behind The Dark Knight Rises. Uh, She won't touch Dark Knight Rises because that one had a 448 mil domestic haul uh, Wonder Woman currently sits at just around 400 million. So it's, she's not going to make another 40 mil. So she's going to stay in third place in terms of DC. But uh, damn, 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 Wonder Woman really cleaned up this year. Um, and with Wonder Woman on the brain, I was asked a question earlier this week or earlier or late last week about the sequel, about Wonder Woman. One of the listeners sent in a question, Tavo Borrego was wondering if we should be worried about Patty Jenkins. Why the hell has she yet to officially sign on for Wonder Woman? And the funny thing is, I thought he was wrong at first. I could have swore that at some point in late June, there had been an announcement that she was officially on it. But I guess that announcement was that she's officially working on the script, and I guess kicking around the actual, you know, uh, the putting the, the the project together. We know that she's currently co-writing the script with Jeff Johns, but she has yet to officially sign on the dotted line as director of Wonder Woman Two. This, despite the fact that she's already said lots of positive things about what she plans to do with it and how exciting it is for her to get to sort of dive back into this world and 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 tell some great stories. But for whatever reason, she has yet to sign. The only thing I can think of is money. Right now, they're probably just knee deep in negotiations. Right now, she's got a ton of leverage uh, because she's given them their first, she's given Warner Brothers their first unadulterated DC Extended Universe hit. Um, You know, the thing opened great, it had great reviews, it's got incredible legs. And, for the, and more important than any of that is it got people universally speaking positively about the DCEU, which is something that none of the previous three films were able to do. So right now, she's got a ton of leverage. And her agent, her manager, they're probably speaking with the studio right now saying, listen, we want whatever it is you paid Zack Snyder, whatever it is you paid Christopher Nolan, we want that for Patty because she gave you guys you know, uh, a golden cow here. You know, the chicken that gave... She's now the chicken that lays the golden eggs as far as they're concerned because Wonder Woman is, you know, it's a a triumph. So what I'm thinking is there's probably a lot of negotiations about that. Uh, I can't imagine that they're not going to figure out what to do. Maybe they'll give her some points on the back end. They're going to figure out something to sweeten the deal for her. But in terms of Warner Brothers right now, you know, they have to be... Relatively uh, conservative, you know, because the, they've taken some hits. Remember, King Arthur cost them a shit ton of money earlier this year, you know, and last year, Batman v Superman underperformed after they spent a crap ton on it. You know, th- th- there have been a bunch of films for Warner Brothers that have either barely met expectations or gone under expectations. Wonder Woman was like the first film they've put out in a while which far exceeded expectations, but as a whole Warner Brothers has been has, been, has had a bumpy couple of years, let's just say. So you know they have to be a little conservative with the purse strings here. So they're probably negotiating on their end to just try to get Patty to agree to something a little on the lower end than what she's asking for. So we'll see how that all plays out. But I cannot imagine that they're not going to work it out some way, somehow. Um, So I hope that answers your question, Double. That, no, I don't think we should be worried. I'm sure they'll iron it out. And my hunch is... They're just trying to iron out the money situation, because she deserves a crap ton. Right now, they don't necessarily have a crap ton, and they also have like 80 other DC movies in the works, so they have to figure out the budgets and where all that money is going, and if the investments are all worthwhile. But I'm sure they're going to figure something out sooner rather than later. And while we're on the subject of DC, the director of Shazam recently made some comments about Shazam. And here's what he had to say. Here's what Sandberg said. He said, uh, it's very fun. It's a very fun, lighthearted movie. It's about a kid who gets to become an adult superhero. So that's just going to be so fun to explore. Um, In terms of when we're going to finally find out who's playing him, all he would say is hopefully soon. Uh, He also went on to say that just in terms of his connection to the character, he said, to be honest, it was not a superhero I grew up with either. When I grew up in Sweden, there wasn't a lot of Shazam around. So it's someone who I've learned to love later in life as well. So I can relate to people who are new to Shazam. I think it might be a good thing that I'm doing it because I know what you need to learn. Uh, And I kind of have to agree. You know, maybe you know, since, since Shazam is one of those characters that like a lot of people know of, but not really know about, having someone else who's who's learning about the character be the one who introduced him could be good. I think that could be beneficial. Because um, yes, you know, I, I'm totally with him on that. Shazam is one of those characters where I can picture him. I know the basic mythology. I saw the uh, the Black Adam, Shazam, Shazam, uh, DC animated film. So you know I, I have a basic cursory knowledge of him, but I couldn't tell you much else about what makes him cool or interesting or why he's existed for all these years. I think the most interesting I found him was when I read Mark Wade's uh, brilliant Kingdom Come book, which by the way, little tangent, I've always said if they ever did a live action Kingdom Come, you know who I'd hire to be Superman? This is going to seem kind of random. But and on top of that, I've been saying this for about 10 years now, so maybe he's too old these days. But what I've been saying is Chris Noth, uh, Chris Noth, who played uh, Mr. Big on Sex in the City, look him up to me. He's always looked like old Superman, he just has that Superman vibe, but that like Superman in the golden years type of vibe. Let me know what you think. If you can picture that, for me, I can picture it. Perfectly. So that is still sort of my dream casting. If they ever make a Kingdom Come movie, get me Chris Noth as Superman. Now switching gears a little bit over to DC's uh, rival, Marvel. Uh, I I have a feeling that the MCU is about to suffer its first sort of uh, pratfall. Uh, And it's not for the film division, it's for the television division, and that would be with Inhumans. I can't seem to find anyone who's excited about that fucking show, and it cracks me up, because, you know, Marvel has been on such a hot streak, lately everyone is pretty high on anything that they're producing. You know, even if they don't love the final product, there's at least a buzz. There's at least something about, oh, did you hear that, you know, Iron Fist is going to be arriving soon, or, oh, there was that Agent Carter series, or, ooh, Ghost Rider's going to pop up on uh, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Like, you know, there's still a generally positive buzz when it comes to Marvel's TV efforts. Uh, Iron Fist was kind of the first time under this new regime where a Marvel TV series was, was met with like, what the fuck is going on? And I'm worried that Inhumans is going to take that and uh, fail even more loudly than Iron Fist did for a while there. By the way, I'm not passing judgment on Iron Fist. I just remember the shitstorm when it came out, about the whitewashing—not even just the whitewashing, more so just the quality of the series, the writing, the acting, the choreography. Uh, how you know how Finn Jones didn't really learn any real martial arts to play a character that's supposed to be an intense martial artist. Um, but this looks like it's going to fail even more loudly. Because, A, it's on Channel 7, you know, it's on network TV, which everyone gets, not everyone sees Netflix uh, shows, but also because the budget is high and because it's more ambitious. You know, they're doing this whole thing with the release on IMAX and they're really trying to make this thing into like an event. It's an event series. You start it in a movie theater and then you continue it in weekly episodic form on Channel 7. You know, there's all this hoopla about that and IMAX is paying for the first two episodes and so the budget, you know, that gives Marvel more money to make the rest of the eight episode first season look dynamite because now, you know, the, you know IMAX is footing some of the bill for the beginning. So it's going to look big. It's going to have more spending dollars behind it in terms of advertising. So for the most part, there's going to be more eyeballs on Inhumans than possibly any of the other Marvel shows outside of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., which debuted, you know, in uh, as part of the afterglow of the Avengers love fest of 2012. So Inhumans, I feel like if it sucks and it looks like it might, it's going to be a big deal if it sucks. Iron Fist sucking is kind of like okay, we can kind of overlook it. It's the fourth in a in a franchise that's been beloved for the most part. you know people love Daredevil. people were very high on Jessica Jones. For the most part people were high on Luke Cage. Iron Fist you, know, you can overlook some of some of its weaknesses because you know what it was a rare misstep. But in humans, it looks like it's almost gonna be its own thing. So it's not like you can really compare it against much, and it's just going to—it's just gonna to suck. That's the way it looks. And in researching the show, there's just a couple of things that for me just jump out. Uh, aside from the fact that the trailers look hokey, and I can't really imagine ever sitting down to watch this damn thing, uh, sh- the showrunner, the showrunner is the same showrunner for Iron Fist. I'm sorry if that's like, you know, old news, but I didn't realize that. So they want to sort of bring the Netflix mentality to the ABC network. You know, that that was one of the things that they've said while hyping up uh, Inhumans, that they want to bring that sort of, you know, uh, there's always like a fervent anticipation for Marvel's Netflix series, which haven't really been there for some of the ABC stuff like Agent Carter. Uh, so they're trying to bring that Netflix stuff over, that Netflix excitement to channel, you know, to ABC. But they hired the guy who ran the worst of the Netflix shows to do it. To me, that's a big warning sign. So yeah, with all due respect to Mr. Scott Buck, uh, just based on the fact that you made Iron Fist, which is the first of the Marvel series that was panned. Now you're running Inhumans, which has no semblance of positive buzz behind it. And it just looks like this is, this is going to be the first sort of uh, real embarrassment for the MCU. Um, and there was one other thing that came up in my research, which is, because I'm still trying to figure out where the hell does this work in terms of the canon And according to the Wikipedia page, and I looked at their sources, you know, it looks like this is not going to be a spinoff of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., despite the fact that Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. had a heavy inhuman presence there for like a season or two. And yet somehow it is part of the same shared universe. So it's like, how is this going to work It's not related to the Inhumans stuff that we've already seen on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., but it is somehow set in the same world as Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and the movies, presumably. This is just, it's a mess. It's a mess. And I don't know if you guys had a chance to read the uh, phenomenal column written by my friend Unboxing John. Uh, he uh, He wrote an article about how Marvel television and the Marvel movies really are disconnected. And just hearing this stuff about Inhuman just got me thinking about his piece some more, about how there no, there really is no cohesion there between the small screen and big screen universes. And now it looks even within the TV universes, there's going to be things that don't really add up. Um, eh, just what a disaster. But you know what's not a disaster? Josh Brolin as fucking Cable. Uh, they recently released the official stills of how Cable is going to look in Deadpool 2. And the guy looks badass. Uh, I don't know if you've had a chance to look at the pictures, but Cable looks great. And that, you know, th- th- they had to release it because now he's starting to film on location, and now the spy pics are starting to come out. So they did it not a moment too soon because already there are spy pics of Brolin on set of Deadpool 2 in his full cable getup. And you could see that he's wearing a sleeve that, that uh, you know, they're, they're going to CG his arm for the robot arm, obviously. But, you know, it's best that they showed him in all his glory before you saw him with just the weird sleeve on his arm. Um, but yeah, Deadpool, you know, uh, Josh Brolin looks great. You know, my big concern with him is I wonder if they can make him appear more hulking. You know, when I think of Cable, I think of a big dude. You know, when you you picture like the traditional drawings of Cable, he's a big fucking guy. And, you know, I worked on the set of Wall Street 2 and I stood right next to the man. And, you know, he's probably like maybe five, eight, five, nine, you know, I'm a six footer. I remember I was sort of, you know, I was noticeably taller than him. And I remember taking note of that because, you know, I, he was sort of being mentioned already a little bit to possibly play Batman. I'm like, wow, he's going to be a pretty short Batman, but, uh, no, he's, uh, you know, he's going to be a fairly short cable. I wonder how they're going to handle that. Are they going to, you know, do some fun depth perception things, make him look a little taller than Ryan Reynolds, or are we just going to have a sort of shorter cable than we're used to? I'm curious to see how they sort of handle that, that visual presentation for him. Now, another story that caught my eye today, which isn't even really for the reason advertised, is a story that I saw going around about Hawkeye. Hawkeye getting a Netflix series if Jeremy Renner would be interested in such a thing. And listen, the story itself is not interesting because he basically says it's not up to him and he'd be down for it, but it's not something that's in the cards. Um, But for me, what stuck out to me was this quote. Uh, So he said, you know, these are things that are really not in my control, but I'd be open to it. I've really enjoyed getting to explore the character more recently. The Netflix model is where all the character drama goes to now. You're doing a superhero movie or a Netflix or HBO kind of model. So I'd be open to it. Not up to me, though. It's that part there in the middle that really grabbed me. The Netflix model is where all the character drama goes to now. You're doing a superhero movie or a Netflix kind of model. So right there, it almost seems to be almost like a Freudian admission of the fact that within the Marvel proper movies, you know, the actual superhero movies that they make in the Marvel cinematic universe, that's not, there's not a lot of room there for character drama. And, you know, as something I've been talking about a lot here on the podcast that I've, I've heard from an awful lot of people lately, is people are starting to sort of grow tired of Marvel because it's sort of toothless. It doesn't really dig beneath the surface. There's not a lot of drama. Everything is sort of fluffy and filled with jokes, and it's, it's more about the spectacle and how bouncy and cute and humorous it all is. But in terms of, like, depth and character drama, you know, you can only really get that from Marvel's Netflix shows. So this sounds like a tacit admission of that, where even Renner acknowledges that you're not really going to get character drama in a Marvel movie, but on Netflix is where the characters can really sort of spread their wings and we can get to know what makes them work and, and find them out on, in a way that goes beyond the surface. So that sort of you know jumped out at me as like, hmm, even he sees it and he sort of indirectly admitting it. I'm not saying that he's like firing shots at his, uh, at his Marvel cohorts. I'm sure he's very happy to be part of the, uh, the franchise, but I just found it interesting how he just sort of like, to him, there's a very clear demarcation there. There's a clear difference between what happens in the movies and what happens in the series, you know, the Netflix shows. And that's where you get the real character drama. And even Renner seems to know that. Uh, another little Marvel bit that jumped out at me was James Gunn talking about the possibility of a Ravagers movie, and you know what? As much as harsh as I've sort of been on the Guardians flicks, uh, mind you, I, I didn't dislike either one. I just thought they were a bit overhyped and a bit too, uh, like I, to, to quote myself from 35 seconds ago, a little too fluffy, a little too just more about cute quips. And, and stuff of that nature, when there really are the ingredients there for something that's a little more original and a little more hard hitting. Uh, when it comes to the ravagers, like I would love if they just sort of let James Gunn get weird, you know, if, if Gunn can just sort of cut loose and do like a weird sort of low budget, almost like straight, you know, back in the day, they used to call it straight to video, make it like a straight to Netflix ravagers movie. Starring all the people you know with, with 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 Stallone and Rosenbaum and everyone's who's part of that Ravagers crew that we meet at the End of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two, I would love like a B movie Ravagers with a low budget where James Gunn can just sort of like let loose and tell his own sort of quirky, original, idiosyncratic story. Uh, I would love the fuck out of that. And listen, I know a bunch of you are like, "Oh, but the Guardians movies are his movies." You know, there's always this this buzz, this talking point about the fact that Gunn isn't really given any uh, creative limitations when it comes to the Guardians films; that he's basically made his movies. But as much as as often as that sort of thing is said, I don't know if I necessarily buy it. Uh, and maybe if there are restraints, maybe they're self-imposed. Maybe it, maybe it isn't Feige who's saying it, but I always get the sense from Gunn that he's trying to be careful about what he does within Disney's sandbox. You know, he knows that Marvel's owned by Disney. He knows that Marvel generally goes for a more colorful, more uh, family-friendly fare, so I kind of get the sense that maybe Gunn self edits. Maybe Gunn try purposely tries to tell stories that are a little more on the fluffy side, as opposed to getting into some of the deeper, darker stuff. Like you know, he released that Belko Experiment movie that he wrote earlier this year. You know, the guy's got dark, interesting, sadistic sensibilities at times. He's made some very unique, thought provoking movies uh, with very layered characters. And for whatever reason, with Guardians of the Galaxy, I feel like he's only really scratched the surface. He's scared to go beneath the surface. If he was ever allowed to make a Ravagers movie, I would say make it low budget, make it like straight to straight to Netflix, and just let him cut loose and make a weird B-movie out of the Ravagers. That, I think, would be fire. Um there were a couple of cool trailers I saw this week. I don't know if you guys saw them, but uh, last night, the, the, the latest Darren Aronofsky movie called Mother, starring Jennifer Lawrence and Javier Bardem, uh, they dropped their new trailer and holy crap, that movie looks good. Uh, it wasn't on my radar really at all, but it looks fairly phenomenal. Uh, yeah, Darren Aronofsky very rarely lets you down. I mean, his last few movies have been phenomenal. You know, I loved, loved The Wrestler. Uh, I really, really liked Black Swan. Uh, and in general, yeah, you know, the guys, the guy is a dependable filmmaker. He makes very unique, sort of outside of the lines, outside of the box, non-cookie cutter fare. Um, And Mother looks like it's going to be just that. So if you have not had a chance to see the trailer for Mother... I would strongly suggest you check it out. I also happen to think it's very cool that it comes out in like five weeks and we know next to nothing about this fucking movie. I like when I don't know anything about a movie. I like to just basically let the movie do what it does, you know, and I like that the advertising for this film so far has been so minimalist that you have a sense it's gonna be sort of dark and weird and another weird, like Aronofsky joint, but you don't necessarily know the how and the why and the what of what's going on. And it all sort of goes back into my thesis from last week, where I was talking about how Hollywood has been releasing a lot of risky movies this year. A lot of films that are not cookie cutter, that are not safe, that are outside the lines. Like another one, you know, last night when I went to see Dunkirk, they had a trailer for The Snowman. Starring Michael Fassbender, where he plays Detective Harry Hole. You know, it's a book adaptation. And I remember covering it a couple years ago when when the project first started coming together. And seeing the trailer was just like, wow. You know, this looks like yet another grown-up thriller coming out. That's not based on a comic book. Uh, Yes, it's an adaptation of a book, but it's not like a series that we've heard of before. It is more or less, you know, an original concept. Um, And it looks like, you know, it's just another one of these films coming out this year where it's like, you know, you really can't say that Hollywood's resting on its ass and just regurgitating the same shit over and over again because the snowman looks great. Mother looks really interesting and unique and there's just you know and I I'm not going to repeat myself from last week listen to listen to the beginning of last week's episode to hear what I have to say on this but there've been a lot of films that are like outside of the box this year and I think Hollywood deserves a shit ton of credit for you know just not not doing all the safe moves that they that people always accuse them of. People love talking about how creativity and originality are dead. There have been a lot of original and interesting films out this year. And I hope to fucking God that you're out there supporting them, people. Because if you're not, then you do not deserve, you do not have the right to then shit on Hollywood for for being risk averse because you are not supporting these. So sometimes you got to get yourself out of the theater just to cast a vote in this direction. If you want more of a certain kind of movie and less of another kind, don't see Transformers, see Mother, you know? Um, But anyway, uh, I would even say don't see Dunkirk, see Baby Driver, but that's that's just me getting uh, spiteful now about how Chris Nolan let me down again. Um, and I really kind of think that's it in terms of the news this week. I kind of want to wrap up with uh, a referral, uh, a twofold referral. One, I want you to see a video that's currently making the rounds and going viral online. And then I have a referral for, uh, what is essentially probably my, the most important film for me ever. Uh, so the video centers on Jim Carrey. I'm sharing it on the official MFRL Fanboy Facebook page. You should definitely, you know, go like that page. Uh, it's a video about Jim Carrey. Uh, it's about the sort of interesting twist that his life has taken in the last six years. He's actually become an artist, a, a painter and a sculptor. And it's kind of like a documentary 6 minutes short, on this new sort of uh, lease on life he has as a as a painter, and some of the stuff you know. First of all, the art is jaw dropping, and I'm not someone who's typically you know a big uh, painting guy. Uh, I sound like such a mook. but you know I'm not. You know like, oh, yeah, that's cool. But these like the the sampling of work that they showed in this video. I'm like, wow! I I would actually like one of those on my wall. Like, I can understand what he's going for. It's not just an abstract thing where it looks like a six year old covered themselves in paint and rolled on a canvas. Like, there's there, there's there the the paintings seem to be filled with meaning and power, and and there's a thought process that goes into them that for me seems very transcendent and very inspirational. Uh, and just some of his philosophies when it comes to his art. Uh, I strongly suggest you check out this six-minute video. I walked away from it feeling very sort of inspired and very just like, wow, you know. I already was a big Jim Carrey fan, but seeing him follow his muse here was really, really uh, inspiring. And, and it's, it's great to see that he's forever evolving as an artist, Um With that said, I want him to do more movies. I I lament the fact that there's so little Jim Carrey in cinemas anymore. You know, I grew up in the Jim Carrey heyday. I was 11 when he had that absolutely unbelievable 1994 that he had. You know, in 1994, he had perhaps the best year an actor who's looking to make it big could ever have. In that single calendar year, he released Ace Ventura Pet Detective, he released The Mask, and then he released Dumb and Dumber. Those are like three like seminal 90s comedies. They show him firing on all these different cylinders, using all these different types of characters and humor that are within him. It was just a tour de force year. And I remember when I realized a couple of years ago that, wait a minute, all three of those came out in 1994? Holy shit. Can you think of another actor who's had three huge movies in a single calendar year? I think it would be pretty hard to find that. Usually you'll see an actor like, yes, maybe they'll have one blockbuster flick and one indie in a given year. But he had three major studio comedies in one year and all of them have pretty much stood the test of time. Maybe The Mask hasn't aged so well because of the CG effects, but those were three huge fucking 90s movies, all with the same guy in the lead, all came out the same year. And in that year, it cemented Jim Carrey for me as one of my favorite performers of all time. And I've always sort of made it uh, made it a point to see anything that he's in. I respect him. I've, I've studied his his uh, biography and who he is, where he comes from, why he does what he does, his, uh, his philosophies, his inspirations. And Jim Carrey for me is just, you know, he's top of the line. I know he's done some kooky stuff in recent years and he's been a part of some things that I'm not all that proud of. Uh, I don't want to get political on here, so I'm not going to go there. But all in all, I have nothing but love for Jim Carrey, the artist, and which brings me to a referral. You know, I kind of stopped doing the referrals for you guys because I wasn't really getting any feedback from you, so I wasn't sure if you guys liked them or if anyone was taking me up on my suggestions. So for the last, I would say, three episodes, I stopped giving you a referral but right now, I'm going to go ahead and just do it because I've got Jim Carrey on the brain, and here it is: a film that I've seen many, many times. That I bought the second it came out on DVD. That I introduced to people at least once a year. I bring a friend over and I say, "You have to watch this film." Um, is Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind? Uh, that film is just—it's just beautiful. Uh, and heartbreaking and uh, genius in terms of its ingenuity and visual, visual storytelling, the emotional themes that it, that it, that it explores, the way it, the whole thing unfolds. just that movie hits me right where I live and every time I see it, it just grabs me. And I have the soundtrack, I love John Bryan's uh, soundtrack, Michelle Gondry's direction, Jim Carrey is magnificent in it, it has Kate Winslet, who is my favorite uh, actress, like, ever, and if you have not yet seen Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, I strongly suggest you do, and just know that it's pretty, if it's not number one, it's in my top three of all time. But um, all right, folks, that is enough for me. This is the 26th edition now. Wow, we're halfway towards a year, folks. Uh, I don't think I've missed a, a week yet. I sometimes I I have to wait until Friday, but I've been here every week since I got fired from that shitty site. Uh, and I, I really appreciate those of you who've been with me uh on this journey thus far. Um I don't want to overhype anything because I feel like I mentioned a lot of stuff and then it becomes empty promises. But earlier, like over the weekend, I started brainstorming some really exciting content I want to create for you guys. And I'm planning on making that part of uh, my Patreon offerings. When I finally get the Patreon up and going, I've got some really exciting stuff that I want to get to make for you. Um, Hope you guys are having an amazing week so far. And uh, that's it. Until next week. Adios.